Can y'all hear me? Yeah? So how y'all doing? Um, good morning, good morning, greetings and salutations from Redemption, Alhambra, Phoenix, 19th Avenue, and Indian School Road. Just a, a little, like, so we get to know each other a little bit more, a little bit of background of who I am, what my background um, is, and, and how much I love God. Uh, I'm a New York native, um, by way of Jamaica, I'm a New York native. Um, loved it out there, grew up out there, um, met my wife out there. Uh, I have three kids that are hanging out with us today. I grew up um, Nation of Islam, that's the, um, where my background is at. Um, I love God daily. God saved me and, and, and opened my eyes to his gospel uh, 20 something years ago, I think. And, and since then, he's been growing me and maturing me and teaching me more and more about who he is. And so I love, 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 love sharing the gospel. Over there at Redemption Alhambra, I am pastor over um, teaching in classes, and um, I, I preach. So I have the opportunity to come over here and preach all 1,000 verses of Psalms 119. <laughs> so we'll be here till next week. Kick your shoes off and relax. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge text. It's a huge, huge, huge text, and, but I'm super excited. God has been really challenging me, just, just prepping for, for preaching this and, and, and going through it. And at first, we was, you know, at a harm, but we was thinking about, well, separating it, but then we're like, even though it's a huge text, the, the theme is consistent throughout the entire text. So here's one thing. And, and just open up, I'm not, obviously I'm not going to read all of Psalms 119, right? Because then that will just be the sermon, right? You're saying, but you can open your Bibles to Psalms 119, and, and, and we're going to just go through it. So it's impossible to read that text without constantly hearing the psalmist talk about his affections for the law of God, right? You read that text, he talks about it over and over. And it's impossible to miss it. You go to the left, you bump into him talking about how much he loves the law of God. You go to the right, you're bumping into it again. You go forward, you're running into it. You go backwards, you're backing up into him talking about how much he loves the laws of God. He talks about how the laws of God gives them life. He talks about how the laws of God, that those that... People are blessed. Those that keep the laws of God are blessed. He talks about how much he delights in the law of God and how he loves the law of God. He talks about how the law of God is true. And then how he feels when he sees others that, that don't care about the laws of God. He talks about how wondrous the laws of God are. He talks about how these laws of God Give peace, how they're, they're peace. And he talks about how he'll never forget the laws of God. He talks about the laws of God all the way through this text. And he goes around and talks about something else, comes back to the laws of God. Talks about something else, comes back to the laws of God. But the whole thing is connected. He writes this full-on love letter to God concerning his laws. The law is mentioned 
around 25 times in this one text. Around 25 times. So if I'm going to preach through this text, right, and this is where I feel the Spirit lead. If I'm going to preach through this text right here and with so much talk about, about the law, I think that I want to set the stage here. I think it's extremely important to, to get two things out the way. So I want to spend one half just talking about these two things I want to get out the way. Um, one, what is the law to the writer of this psalm? All right? He mentions the law so much, so I want to be clear what the law is to the writer of this psalm. But then I also want to be clear, the second thing is, what is the law to us? What's the law to the writer of this psalm, since he talks about it so much, and what's the law to us? So just, just a little bit of groundwork here that I want to do. So we, so we have this the same perspective, I, I don't like assuming things, assuming somebody knows this or somebody knows that, so I'd rather cover the ground so we're all walking and on this journey together. So when he talks about the law, literally he's talking about the Torah, right? Torah is Hebrew for instructions or doctrine of divine law. So when he talks about the law, he's talking about the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This was the Torah, the Pentateuch. This was the Torah. So this is what he had during that time. When he's talking about how much he loves the law, at that time, that's, that's what they had. So he's talking about the content he found inside Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The, the, the things that were words of instruction from God. The things where, where God gave his people direct instructions from him. He's saying he loved these things. I love your direct instructions to me. I love the things that are your word of direct instruction. And then you fast forward past his time and then you look at the time with the, the apostles and, and, and them during the time of prepping for the New Testament. Now, by this time, there was more than just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You had the rest of the Old Testament during this time. But yet still, when they talked about the law, they was talking about the same thing. What was contained in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So when he talks about the law and his affections for the law, he's talking about all these things that, that God told to Moses while he was up on a mountain. And these are your, my instructions for my people. And he was saying, man, I love this law so much. That's what he's talking about right there. So that's what the law is for, for him. But what's the law for us? Now, for us, we see the law through, through slightly different lenses than the writers of the Old Testament. And we see the law through slightly different lenses than the writers of the New Testament themselves. We see it a little bit differently because we look at the hindsight of everything, right? We look at the hindsight of everything. When he was writing this, this was before the rest of the Old Testament was there. When the, when the apostle was doing their writing, they were, that was before the New Testament was there. So they're going best off of just the Old Testament. But we're looking in hindsight at, at everything. 
We see, we see through the lenses of the entire Old Testament. Like, we see the law through, through, through the Torah. Yes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's like the 17th time I said that. We, we see it through those lenses, yes, right? But we see it through the lenses of the entire Old Testament. Now, okay, now we're also looking at, at the Psalms like we're going through today. And now we're also looking at, at Chronicles and Kings and, and all these other books that, were, were come, that came after these parts but are traveling along the way as we're understanding the implications of the law and how it affected how people lived. So we see it through the lenses of the entire Old Testament but we also see it through the lenses of the entire New Testament, too. So we see it a little bit different. We see it through the lenses of the entire Bible all together, the inspired word of God. Like, he was saying he loved the words of instructions from God. And now we look at the Bible and we see the entire Bible that we have today at our resources as the entire word of God. So when we're thinking about the instructions of living from God, we find that inside the Bible and that's what we see it as. We look at the Old Testament and... We see the Old Testament gives context to the New Testament. The passion that they had and the thing that they did in the New Testament was flowing from the Old Testament. The Old Testament what was inspiring them. Everything they did in the New Testament was an overflow of the passion they had from what they read in the New Testament. So we see the Old Testament and it gives context to the New Testament and the New Testament gives definition to the Old Testament. Following me so far? The New Testament gives definition to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament and all of its laws was leading to Christ. The Old Testament, all the like 175,000 laws was all leading to Christ, right? And then Christ defines the true heart and essence of the law. That's what he comes. He defines the true heart and essence of the Lord. You read the New Testament, even though he, he, he comes to define the, the true heart and essence of the Lord, he was constantly running into issues and problems with those people that felt that they were trying to uphold the Lord. But the thing is that he was trying to show them the, the true heart of the Lord. Now, for us today... And one of the things inside my background is that I've had the opportunity to, 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 since I didn't grow up in church, when I started going to church, my lenses was, was, was different. I seen it just for how it was at that time and moment. Sometimes when you grow up in church or grow up in a certain denomination or grow up in a certain kind of church, then you have those lenses on from the time that you grow up inside of it. It's sort of like a fish being inside of a water. That fish doesn't realize it's in water until you take the fish out of water, right? The fish is swimming around. Yeah, I'm in water and stuff, you know? He doesn't know that, right? So but for me, like, 
I'm a pastor out of a reformed church, but I wasn't always in a reformed church. My first 15 years, I was in a more of a charismatic church. So I had the opportunity to see it and see the flaws of that just for what it was and not going in it and seeing it through the lenses of, of growing up inside of it. And then I have the same opportunity now in a reformed. Even though I was going to a charismatic church, I was reformed in theology and in heart. Right? So I see a lot of things that I, that I believe disfragment the body, and, and, and a lot of times when I preach, I want to point those things out and draw things in. So there's a lot of confusion that, that sets in because when you start thinking about the law, the law talks about how we are to live as believers. These were the instructions of the law, how to live. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. But everything was about how to live, how to live, how to live. And then there's a lot of confusion that starts to set in for believers that they look at it now because you hear Paul saying things like the law has come to an end and it seems like it contradicts things that Christ is saying, right? So you have Paul saying, man, the law has come to an end. There's no more law. The law has come to an end. And then you hear Christ saying things like there will be no aspect of the law that will ever pass away. And it sparks confusion for a lot of people inside the church. There's some people in some areas of the body that start becoming divided over this confusion, over what's really going on here. So you have, you have some camps that are functionally legalistic because they don't believe the law has passed away. And since the law has to do with how you live, they believe how you live earns your salvation. So they have a, a works-based salvation mindset because they don't believe the law has passed away. And it's all about how you live. And then you swing it over to the other side and you have other camps that say, well, the law is dead. There's no more law now. It's all about grace now. And how we live has no impact on our salvation. It's, 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 it's grace. It's a grace-based salvation mindset. But many times, many of them just abide in grace and become functionally lawless. Thus, how they live become questionable. These are both sides of the fences here. But if we're going to go through this, I want us to be unified in how we see the law. A lot of times when, when people see verses inside the Bible that seemingly contradict one another, what they do is choose a side and ignore the other verse. I don't know how to explain that verse. I don't know how to make that verse fit into my current frame of theology. So I just skip over that verse and move on and I choose a side. And a lot of times they think it's either or and it's not either or, it's both and, right? But a lot of times since they don't understand it, they reject it. But the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So a lot of times it means that we need to dig deeper and we need to pray longer. Lord, show me how do these things complement one another? How do these verses draw life out of each other? They seem to contradict right here, but I know that your word doesn't contradict. No way, no shape, no form, Lord. So how does these things impact one another, shape and mold one another? How do they complement each other? Instead of just ignoring it and skipping over it and going to the verse that sort of fit into your theology more. So when it comes to 
to this topic, there's an illustration that I heard once that, that made tons of sense, and I love it. It's from R.C. Sprawl, and he gave this illustration concerning the law in context to Christ. I want to share that illustration before we go on. So he says, this, this is how he, he described the law in context to, to Christ. So you have the written law. And he said the written law is sort of like when you're driving down a block and you come to a, a, a traffic signal, the red light, green light. The written law says at a red light, you stop. The written law says, this is what I'm supposed to do here. At the red light, I stop. The written law says, at the green light, I go. This is what I'm supposed to do to be abiding inside the law. And, um, that's what the written law says. But if you come to that traffic signal, and what you see there is a police officer directing traffic, go this way, go that way, stop, go. Stop, go, yeah, right? <laughs> Now what you do, you don't say, well, I see you, police officer, but I'm following the stop sign. Because that police officer now embodies the full weight of the law, right? That police officer now is the full embodiment of the law. That's what Christ is to the law, right? He is the full embodiment of the law. The purpose of the law, uh, the, 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 the stop sign was to provide order. So that police officer there is doing the, the essence and purpose of the law. He's providing order by directing the traffic, and he is now the full embodiment of that law. That's what Christ is to the law. In Romans 10 and 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law. This doesn't mean that the law is no more or of no more use or done away with, but instead that Christ is the destination point of the law, that the law leads to Christ. That's where we're going to. So we believe the letter of the law leads you to Christ. Right? Following me? We believe the letter of the law leads you to Christ. That's what it's taking you to. That's the destination point, Christ. Thus we believe that we believe that in Christ you find the true heartbeat and true essence of the law. We believe that all of Scripture points towards Christ, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We believe that the gospel is the, the good news of Christ foreshadowed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. Thus, for us, the law... It's the gospel. So when we think about the law, it's the gospel. So as the writer of Psalms 119 is writing about his love for the law, thinking about the Torah, I'm fully convinced that it's God's divine providence that, that we will be sitting here reading and preaching through his writings concerning a love for the law today while thinking about the gospel. And when I say the gospel, the gospel doesn't say salvation is gained by, by how we live, but instead is gained by grace through faith reflected in how we live. You following me? 
is gained by grace through faith, but it is reflected in how we live. So it's not that how we live doesn't play a part. How we live is a reflection of what we believe. That's why how we live becomes super important. So for the rest of this time, as we, as we dive into this, I want us to continue to, to look at the Psalms through those lenses, through the lenses of the gospel. Whenever he says the law, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Now, I can say this confident because I know that you guys hear the gospel preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday relentlessly over here. I know that you do, all right? I, I chat with Vince a lot. I know that you do, right? So, so, so this is what's being talked about here. And this, so I'm going to dive inside this thing, but there's no way for me to preach the full richness of this text because it's just way too long. There's no way for me to preach the full richness. So I, st- I want to give you homework earlier on from now. Like, read back through that text. Set aside three hours to read that text, right? <laughs> but when you read it, and every time he says the law... Think the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. I want you to read through it for yourself with the gospel as your lenses through how you read this. Now, like I said before, this is like a love letter about the law. And the law speaks to us on how we should live as believers. So I want to spend some time speaking to us how we should live as believers Reflecting on Psalms 119, so I want to focus on five themes that I, that I find in Psalms 119 regarding on how we should live. Now, I could have came with like 17. It's rich. There's so much inside of it, but just praying, I just want to pull out five of them that I think is super impactful to us. So those five things, I want to break them into three categories, okay? Five things, five themes broken up into three categories. One category... God. The other category, me. And the third category, others. All right? Five things separated into three categories God, me, others. Category one, God. Things that I see reading through this text. Now, let me just ask this question just so I could. How many people inside here has read through this text? Sweet. Awesome. Good, 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 good. I just want to know. So when I'm, because we're not reading through it, but I want to know that we're connecting. And then those that haven't, you should read through it. This, this is a, one of the most theologically sound texts that a lot of people go to for a lot of different things, and there's a lot of good verses inside it that people reflect on. So the first category is God. So what you see here is this, what I see is a, in the first category of God, and, and I'm going through themes, my, my first theme is you see a desperate 
depending on God to align your heart with the gospel. A desperate, right? I use the word desperate on purpose because that's what I see here. A desperate depending on God. Like I see a desperation here. In, in, in 25, verse 25, he says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. You see the tone of desperation there? My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So when he says my soul clings to the dust, this is a tone of desperation like, like you imagine like a guy that's, that's, that's inside of a desert and he, he's stranded inside of the desert. He's dehydrated and he's on the ground and, and, he, and he's, he's about to die. And it's like he hits the ground and then some dust flies up and he's like desperate. My soul clings to the, to the dust, but what he's asking for isn't, isn't water. He's asking for life. He says, give me life. But he didn't just say, give me life. He says these standards, and he says, according to your word. Give me life according to the gospel. You see this tone of desperation that's at the same time submitted to the gospel. Like, how many times do you go to God, Lord, I need you to help me inside the situation, Lord. I'm crying out to you. Do what you need. Turn it around, Lord. But, 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 but. Just according to the gospel. Oh, how many times, like, Lord, I just want you to just turn around. But he says, according to your word, give me life according to your word. Like, I'm, I'm so submitted to you, Lord. I'm so submitted to the words that you're saying. Give me life, but I want that life according to your words. Because that's where I see life at, in your words. I don't even want it no other direction. Then in Psalms 107, he says, I am severely afflicted. Again, he dramatizes things. You see the, the, the desperation there. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, oh Lord, according to your word. Again, this tone of desperation that's submitted to the word of God, submitted to the gospel. Give me life according to your word. I need you, Lord. I'm severely afflicted, Lord. Give me life according to your word. In 18, he says, and I'm just going to be pulling verses from places and it won't be in order, okay? In 18, he says, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law, the gospel. Open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful, the wondrous things out of your law. If God doesn't open our eyes to see the wondrous things of the gospel, you'll never be truly moved by the gospel. It'll always seem mediocre. It'll always seem like good stuff, interesting. Wow, that's good. But if God doesn't open your eyes to see how wondrous it is, how big it is, how beautiful it is, you'll never be moved to action. You'll never be moved to do something different. And he's saying, Lord, I'm looking at your laws. I'm seeing your laws, but I'm praying to you to open my eyes to view them for the depths of beauty that's inside of it. Now, this is a real cry and a real prayer to where, where we should be at, where we're asking, like, 
I'm not just reading just for reading, Lord, as I dive into your text, as I read your word, Lord. I ask that you will open my eyes. Man, I know how to read, and I'm going to read all the words there. But, Lord, open my eyes that I will see how wondrous this thing is, how big this is, how, how, how all-consuming it is. Otherwise, I will just see words on a paper. And I won't be moved and motivated to action, to doing something, actually. Functionally, I'll just view the text as good and interesting, but not wondrous. Like, whoa. He says in 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you, when you, God, enlarge my heart. You see, a desire not to just walk, but run in the way of the gospel. Like, man, not just I'm going to walk, but I will run in the way of your commandments. Have you ever been at a point in your life where you, you wanted to be on fire for God? Like, like man, I'm hearing, I'm hearing preaching. I'm, I know what I'm reading. And you really wanted to be that guy, man, running in the way of the gospel. Like, but really, the reality of it, like, man, you're at a slow crawl, Right? But really on the inside, you're like, man, I want to be that. I want to be, I want to run in the way of the gospel. I want to be on it. But you just wasn't there. Like, functionally inside of your mind is like, man, it makes sense. I should be, you know, but there's no real answer to why not, right? There wasn't no set of scriptures that you, I'm just going to read the scripture right here. It wasn't like no magic message that just, just clicked the lever and then now you're all on fire. Here we see these external things never worked with effects that were still there after the emotion died down. We may have had these emotional moments where, man, I really felt moved by God, but then after the emotion died off, after the hype dies down, oh, I'm really back at that slow crawl. I know this. Some other people may not really know it. I know that. But I would really love to be that person. And you see here that the real issue here is that there's a heart issue going on here. That's the real thing that's going on here. He desperately needed God to enlarge his heart so he could run in the way of the gospel. That's what we need to live at. Like, Lord, I desperately need you to enlarge my heart 
So I have the affections that you would have so I can run in the ways of the gospel in my marriage. I definitely, I need you to enlarge my heart so I can run in the ways of the gospel concerning my singleness. Lord, I need you to enlarge my heart. I heard the words. I heard the things. Yes, they all make sense, Lord. But there's a disconnect at the heart level, and I need you to enlarge my heart. That I would run after you in your ways. Not even running in my own ways. That I would run in your ways, Lord. I need you to do a work, Lord. I need you to enlarge my heart. When it comes to this particular area, yes, in all life, but if we just look at everything in general and we don't look at the specific things in between, the Bible said it's the small foxes that destroys the vineyard. Lord, I need you to enlarge my heart so I have the heart that you would have, the passion that you would have right here, and I will run in your ways right here, not just walk, but run. This is where we need to live at. Now, another aspect of, of the God category is, is hope. Hope and trust in the promises of God. In 38, it says, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Confirm it, Lord. Basically, asking God to reaffirm it. Man, I've heard your promises, Lord, but sometimes my heart wanes. And I need you to reaffirm your promises to me. And it's no problem with going to God and saying, Lord, I need you to reaffirm your promises to me again. Confirm your promises to me. Why, Lord? So that I may fear you the way that I should. In 49, it says, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Every single thing that we do in this Christian walk is a reflection on trusting God to make good on his promises. Everything. Every single thing that we do in this Christian life is, a, is an aspect of me trusting God to make good on his promises to the point that I leave myself out open. Like I'm stepping right off this stage trusting God to make good on his promises where if he doesn't make good, I fall flat on my face. Paul said that if Christ didn't rise and these things aren't true, then we should be pitied above everybody else. Everything is hinging on trusting God to make good on his promises. This is where hope lies at. It's called faith. This is where hope lies at. So when it comes to living lives that honor and reflect God, but yet you know the wickedness of your own heart hinders you in doing that very thing, hinders you from, from, from reflecting God, from being a, a true image of who he is. You know the content of your heart is dark and black, regardless of what other people may think. You know your own heart. The go-to point isn't behavior modification. The go-to point isn't works. The go-to point isn't your own strength. The go-to point is the promises of God to give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's the go-to point. He says in 32, no, in 20, my soul is consumed 
with longing for your rules at all times. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. This is a statement of trust. Statement of trust is something about the rule giver that caused you to desire his rules. He trusts that the rules of God will bring order to his life. He's trusting these things. It's, it's not, he's not longing for the rules because the rules aren't there. See, he's longing for the rules because he's unsubmitted to the rules. And his soul feels disconnected. And he knows that the rule giver is good. It's easier to submit to rules of a person in authority when you trust that person in authority. It's easier to submit because you trust that person is genuinely for your good. You trust that person knows what he's doing. So it's easy to submit. But if someone that you don't trust is genuinely for your good, something that you don't trust knows what they're doing, then it's hard to trust and submit to the rules. We're right there. Because at the end of the day, the reason it's so hard for so many of us to submit to the word of God and the rules of God is because really, ultimately, we don't trust God. Ultimately, we don't really trust God. So it's super hard to submit in areas that we really don't want to submit at. Category two, right? Category, that's category one, God. Category two, me. Too many times a lot of us on the gray side of things look at what God has already done, what God is doing, what God will do, but not enough time looking at what we need to do because we're overly concerned about being legalistic or relying on work. So we don't spend that much time looking at what we should do, what we should actually be doing and holding ourselves accountable. But God, he's also called us to works. Faith without works is dead. That's what it says. He's also called us to works. There are things that, that we do to demonstrate our faith, right? Right? Yeah, 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 okay. It's pulse check, that's all. Verse 9 poses a question, then follows up with it with an answer. Verse 9, it poses this question, then it follows that question up with the answer immediately after. It says, how can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. So another way to say, is that, say that is by saying, by submitting to his, his ways to the gospel. How can a young man keep his heart pure by submitting his ways to the gospel? So I want to highlight some practical ways of submitting your ways to the gospel found in these texts. There's a couple of them. In 15 it says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. 
meditating on his word, spending time reading it, spending time in deep thought about it, like taking his word and considering his word to the context of the everyday in and out, the mediocre parts, the, the mundane parts of your life. I will meditate on your word. Studying in the ways of God as opposed to self. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Studying in the ways of God as opposed to self. I will meditate on your word and I'm going to look at you, your ways. Because I'm supposed to be a reflection of you. I'm an image bearer of you. I'm not an image bearer of myself. That's one of the things that pointed out in Psalms 100 from last week. It is, it is he that has made us. We're created inside his image. 48, it says, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate again on your statutes. I will lift up my hands. Now, the lifting up of the hands is, is a sign of surrender, Right? I will surrender myself to your word. I will surrender to the gospel. The whole thought and idea that a surrender is needed says that there's enmity, says that there is, is a hostile ground in between you and the gospel, that there's a war is going on. If there wasn't a war going on, there wouldn't even be a need to surrender. But the, people, the reason why people surrender is because there's a war going on and one person is submitting to the other person. He said, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments. I will surrender to your gospel. I will stop fighting. I will wave the white flags. I'll surrender to your commandments, which I love, by the way. And then start meditating on them, thinking deeply on their truths. Another thing that we're called to do in this which I think is super important. When I look at these themes that's flowing through, another thing that we're called to do is speak the gospel. In 13 it says, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And of your mouth. In 46 it says, I will speak of your testimonies before kings. In 172 it says, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. It's one thing to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. It's one thing to hear the gospel, but it's another thing to speak it to yourself. I heard this quote. I think it was Francis Chan, but it was a twist on another quote. And it says, never listen to yourself. Always preach to yourself. When I first heard it, I was like, well, that's, if you can preach to yourself, you're not going to listen to yourself, right? But the heart there is never listen to Yourself, right? Never listen to yourself. Yourself, never listen to, to just yourself. That selfish part of you. That part of you where your world revolves around you and everything else revolves. No, don't listen to that part. Never listen to yourself. But instead, always preach to yourself. But the thing that you're preaching to yourself isn't self. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. Imagine that. Preaching the gospel to the darkness of your heart, yourself. 
the things that you know, verbalizing it. That's one thing I learned growing up in school was we're trying to commit things to our heart and our mind. We would read it, but we would also say it. Anybody remember that? You would read it and you would also say it because it helped you to retain it more, right? So, so, so you're meditating on it, you're reading it, but not just that, you are preaching it yourself. You're hearing it come out of your own mouth and your own situations. That doesn't mean you have the strength, but you are preaching it and the strength is in the word of God, right? Category number three. This is what I'm going to get. I have no idea what I'm doing on time. So category number three. This is what I'm, I'm going to get ready to close up here. Category number three, others, right? Others. I said it was God, right? And we talked about how we desperately need God to do a work. Desperately, I need God to enlarge my heart. I need God to open my eyes that I will see beauty in the words of this text. That I will see how wondrous it is. Lord, I need you to do this work. I'm not relying on my own strength. I'm relying deeply on you to enlarge my heart. Then I looked at, at, at me. But here's one thing that I can do and that I should be doing, studying your word, meditating on your word. Preaching your word to myself and to others. There was a couple of things that stood out to me inside this text that I think is important. Because we know the beauty and value of lives submitted to the gospel, when we see the brokenness and devastation of lives that are rebellious to the gospel, that should break our heart. Because a lot of times we come to the gospel, we come to Jesus for me. It's about me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, my Jesus, me and Jesus, my Jesus. And we're going to Jesus for me, but the gospel was never a gospel just for me. Never was that. It was never meant to just be, just when God created man in his image and likeness, it wasn't just that you individually reflected his image and likeness. It was that mankind collectively will reflect his image and likeness. And this is why in his holiness and in, 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 in his divine mind, when I'm going to create man in my image and likeness with the purpose that man would fill the earth, that mankind would be men, women of different shapes, sizes, and their diversity would be what would be needed to reflect his image throughout all of creation. The same diversity you see inside the Godhead, right? So it's never meant the gospel is a community thing. The gospel causes you to care about what's happening outside of your life. Yes, you care about what's going on inside of your life, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. If you don't, then there's a problem. But it breaks your heart for things happening outside of your life. When you see this is a side effect of a rebelliousness to the gospel, these things, these true laws, these rules that brings order, good rules. We just start with submitting to Christ. 
In verse 136, he says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is a brokenness, a brokenness for, for others, not just for self. A lot of this time you spent time talking about him, but now he's talking about others, a brokenness for, for others. I think about Luke 19 and 41, and Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He's going to die there. And he's walking. He's on his way. He's with his disciples. But he's thinking about the brokenness of Jerusalem. And he's thinking about the side effects of things that's going to happen along the way as a side effect of that brokenness that he stops. And he starts to weep for the city. The city that will kill him. And he weeps for it, thinking about the brokenness of that city. That should be us, broken for the brokenness of our city, of people around us. Our deep love for the gospel, our deep love for the laws of God should not only turn us to God, not only cause us to run after God, but should call us to be broken when we see people in a side effect of their lives that aren't enriched by God, the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for how good you are to us, Lord. We thank you that in your heart, inside your mind, your perfect and holy mind, you will purpose that we will be sitting down reading your word, Lord. Father, I pray today, Lord, that you will open our eyes, that we would see you more beautifully, Lord. That you will open our eyes, that we would see your, your words, Lord, and we would see true depths inside of it. We would see true beauty, true grace, Lord, true mercy, Lord. That we would see how wondrous your word is, Lord. That we will be blown away by your text, Lord. That the weight of your word, Lord, will impact our hearts so much that there are ripple effects that are seen in our lives and the lives of those that are next to us, Lord. I ask that you will break our heart, Lord, and let us not be complacent, Lord. That you move deeply inside of us, Lord, and turn our, our hearts towards you more and more, Lord. That we will find life in your words, Lord. Bless your name, Lord. Ask that you will continue to have your way. Continue to do your work in us and through us for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So now, I just ask you that you just spend a couple of minutes thinking about these things, meditating on, on his word, meditating on the implications of these things and the application. What does it mean inside of your own heart? Where are areas of your, your life that you need the gospel to shine a spotlight on that's unsubmitted to the gospel, that's unsubmitted to God? that you want God to be glorified in. So to spend a few minutes and 
then we'll break bread.